Welcome to the Activist Files, Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. This is Ian Head. I'm here with my co-host, Aliyah Hussein. Hey, Activist Files listeners. We have some exciting news. This is my and Ian's last episode, and we're super excited to bring some new voices onto the podcast. And we actually have those voices here with us. Hi, Leah and Rob. Hi there, everyone. Hey, what's going on? What's up, Ian? What's up, Aaliyah? What's up, guys? Yeah, so excited that you're um, going to be the new hosts. We're excited, too, and, and we're so grateful for all the work you two put in starting up the podcast and really growing it to where it is. You've had uh, many episodes under your belt, so it'd be interesting to hear if there are any that are particularly memorable that you're sort of keeping in mind now. I think one of my favorite episodes is one of the early episodes that we did with Molly Crabapple. I interviewed her and I'd known her for a couple of years. She's a artist, storyteller, writer, and it was just really fun to interview her about a whole bunch of things, um, especially because I've been watching her career over time. I liked all of the episodes we did, but I do remember the very first episode with my friend Ravi Ragbir, who's an amazing immigrant rights activist, and his wife, Amy Gottlieb. It was shortly after Ravi had been detained, and there was a lot going on. He had another ICE check-in and made it out okay, Great. but uh, that was a very memorable kind of start to the podcast, and it's great to like be here over a year later and be handing it off to two amazing colleagues. So thanks so much, guys. Ian, Aaliyah, thank you for everything. This has been so dope. Thank you guys for uh, <laughs> the trendsetters when it comes to uh, you know, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. And uh, yeah, we're yeah. looking forward. Good luck. Ian and Aaliyah did a great job as a co-host. So I'm hoping to just kind of step in and do my thing on here. I'm the senior major gift officer at the Center for Constitutional Rights. I you know, work very closely with our legal and advocacy team, talking to our supporters here as well as across the globe. So you definitely want to support or donate, check out our website at www.ccrjustice.org. Hit that donate button, get involved. We need you now more than ever. You all have probably heard my voice before since I've been involved in supporting the podcast team a bit with some of our interviews, and I'm really excited to continue bringing the work I'm so privileged to do every day at CCR out to our listeners and supporters a bit more. We have a great episode ahead. Josh Manson, our communications associate, speaks with Janice Dickerson and attorney Christopher Meeks. Janice fights with the community against a gas corporation to access the cemetery in Louisiana, where their ancestors have been buried for over a century. Uh, they'll be talking about nepotism and corruption in the Louisiana courts, the racial dynamics in this case, and the struggle to maintain Black-owned land. Sounds like a really amazing episode. Looking forward to hearing it. And to our listeners, as always, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and any other listening platforms you use. For the last 12 years, Janice Dickerson has been in a civil rights battle against Westlake, also known as Axial Chemical, one of the largest vinyl manufacturing facilities in North America. Janice is fighting to get possession of the Reveal Town Cemetery in Plaquemine, Louisiana, that's been in her family for more than 100 years. Janice's third great-grandfather, Robert Taylor, and other former slaves purchased the land in 1881 under the Mount Zion Baptist Association. However, Westlake says it has maintained the cemetery located within its property since 1990, so the company is the rightful owner. Janice said Westlake wants the property on which the Reveal Town Cemetery is located to expand the chemical plant. 
Janice and her attorney, Christopher Meeks, are with the activist files to talk about the nepotism and corruption in the Louisiana courts, the racial dynamics in this case, and the struggle to maintain Black-owned land. Welcome, Janice and Christopher. Thank you. Hello, thank you. Janice, I'm hoping that you can tell us a bit about the history of the Mount Zion Baptist Association and the Revelton Cemetery to get us started. Uh, first of all, the um, cemetery was purchased in eight, the property for the cemetery was purchased in 1881 by a group of slaves, former slaves, who needed somewhere to bury their people. It's been in the community since 1881, and people have been the first documented burial we have is 1917, that of Robert Taylor. Prior to that, death certificates were not required in Louisiana. Most of the bodies are built under, uh, built, buried in the ground. The first concrete vault was 1946. Georgia Gulf came there initially, Georgia Pacific, in the 1919, about 1975-78. And of course, we had no problem with them claiming ownership of the property. In 1990, they allege that they own the property because they've been, well, they possess the property because they've been cutting the grass. Had we not cut the grass from 1881 to 1990, it would have been an overgrown wooded area. <laughs> Let's get one thing very, very clear. That property is not on Georgia Gulf, that cemetery not on Georgia Gulf's property. What Georgia Gulf did is they closed off a public access road called McNeil Street that we used to go down from a Louisiana highway LA 405 straight into the graveyard. They forced us to cross a road called McNeil Street, cross their property to get to the cemetery that creates an illusion of the property being on their property. I have a copy of the only deed. I also have the property registered in the Iperville Parish Clerk of Court's Office under a tax-exempt status. In order to get that, you had to have a bill of sale and a deed. Again, I have copies of both. So far, Georgia Gulf has not been able to produce any bill of sale, nor have they been able to produce uh, a deed. The attorneys that represent, well, Georgia Gulf, Axial, Westlake, is first cousins to the sheriff of Iperville Parish. All these people are interconnected. Racism has always been prevalent. They want the property to destroy it, bulldoze the cemetery, and expand the plant. And I put together a couple of bullet points, and I'm going to go through these bullet points. Uh, we've been threatened by the Iberville Parish Sheriff's Office. Every time we've tried, many times when we've tried to enter the grave, they threatened to take us when we went to the grave to jail if we did not leave the cemetery. The plant, on numerous occasions, forcing us to go across their property, they refused to open up the access gate to get to the cemetery. We've been intimidated. The sheriff's office, whenever we go to sheriff's, uh, the plant will call the sheriff's office. They come with their big guns, got their hands on their guns, and again, intimidating us to try and leave the property. Numerous times, 
they've locked us out of the cemetery. They've simply refused to open the gate that would allow us to cross their property to get to the property we own that the cemetery is set on. They've destroyed graves. They've destroyed flowers. Uh, Their attorneys actually file several false documents in the clerk of court's office trying to claim ownership of the grave. It was allegedly bills of sales where they bought three plantations and the cemetery was part of each one of those plantations. And I'm trying to still figure out how in a real world, other than a banana republic, you can buy property from three different white property owners. The parish president allowed the infrastructure in the parish to be destroyed by the plant, McNeil Street, so that they can build their plant over the road and thus prevent us from using a state highway, a state road, to go down a parish road to access the cemetery. The governor of Louisiana appoint the members of the cemetery board. The cemetery board has refused to enforce their laws that say cemeteries must have unrestricted access in Louisiana. The Louisiana Attorney General's office represents the cemetery board. That he's their legal representative. They've issued cease and desist orders against the chemical plant and the church for illegally charging for burials in the cemetery. We've never charged for burials in that cemetery. Ever since it's been there, it's been a community graveyard, and people were buried for free. Subsequently, because of the cemeteries, the deceased and deceased orders issued to the church and the chemical plant, the attorney general's office stopped burials in the cemetery, which I'm still trying to figure out how that happened. Again, the plant wants the property to bulldoze it to build their, their plant over it. What I'm looking at right now is a case of domestic violence, terrorism, a hate crime, and everything else. And in doing, looking up the definitions of this, clearly the plant has created all of these things. So my question is, there is no justice in the court system. They've got a kangaroo court system, 18 Judicial District Court. And uh, we've been ruled against by every judge in that district. They're all a bunch of banana republic elected officials. And Janice, can you talk a bit about uh, how your how the the community cemetery has been operating, uh, you know, for the past hundred years, more than a hundred years, and why it came to be that that your ancestors purchased that land? Okay, the, the, again, it was purchased in 1881 by former slaves who left the cemetery after slavery ended. And, of course, the former masters would not let them be buried in the plantation cemetery, slave cemetery anymore. So what they had to do was purchase a piece of property to ensure that they had a place to bury the people from the Reveal Town Cemetery. Well, once the ex-slaves left the plantation, they established a small community called the Reveal Town Community. Subsequently, they had to buy a piece of property for the graveyard. And if you travel up and down the river in Louisiana, everywhere you will find a small black community, you will also find that community's graveyard. I mean, from 1881 up until 
they stop burials, all of my relatives are buried in that cemetery on both sides of my family. And as we know, allegedly, cemeteries are supposed to be sacred sites, except for when you come to a black cemetery dealing with a bunch of folk who I call corrupt Klansmen who decide they're going to take the local government and the Paris state government and try and turn it into uh, a piece of property owned by the chemical plant uh, for their own use. And, of course, it's sacred. You imagine having your mama, your daddy, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and everybody else in a place, and you got a bunch of no-good uh, Banana Republic white people trying to tell you you don't own it. And ever since you've known yourself, you've been going back there for burials. We put flowers back there religiously. We paint the graves. We do everything to upkeep the grave. And it's kind of like a generational thing. My earliest recollection of going to that graveyard when I was four, and we would go back there, and even as a child, they'd give us a paintbrush, and we had to paint what we could. So it's a very sacred place. In addition to that, the cemetery is rich in black history and black culture. And as you know, with integration, we lost a lot of our history and culture. We can go back there, and one of the few places you can track generations of black people three and four generations back. You don't need to go to uh, Ancestry.com. You know from oral histories that who's buried in there. There are military veterans buried in there. But again, in this country, black people have no value. So it's a very sacred place. It's a place that was developed for the burial of ex-slaves. It's a place we've kept, we've maintained, we've respected our dead, and we've did we've done everything in the world to preserve their burial ground. And if you go back to his to the history of the African continent and burials, burials have always been very sacred in the black community. And cemeteries are a place, in fact, that black folks always respect. And what what would happen today if you tried to to visit your parents or visit this land that's so sacred, not just to your family but to your whole culture? Uh, it's no telling. It depends on whether or not the plant deser- uh, the plant attorneys decide to call their cousin the sheriff, who decide to threaten us with guns and arrest, or if the chemical plant decide they're going to use their security guards and not open the gate. From day to day to day, we go back there. We never know what to expect. That's why opening that public road that was used for over a century to access the graveyard is so important to get it back open because, again, they're controlling our access because we have to cross their property to get to our property. And Chris can elaborate this on this more. In Louisiana law, they said that if your property is bounded by somebody else's property, you have to have access to your property. But, of course, being black and dealing with an entire corrupt governmental structure, they don't enforce the laws. They make up their own stuff as they do, kind of like they do in Venezuela or some other kind of banana republic. Laws that apply to black people don't apply to white folks. If this would have been a white graveyard, we never would have these problems. But they figure they can do anything to us, given the racist history that has always existed in that parish. 
So we never know what's going to happen every time we go back there. We don't know if we're going to jail or what's going to happen. Can you elaborate a bit on, on the racial history of that parish and of the area? And do you think something like this could ever happen in a predominantly white community? Or is it only because it's a historically black community that uh, they're able to get away with this? It's be, they're able to get away with making up their own laws, refusing to enforce the laws that's on the book because it is a black community. This would never happen to a white cemetery. And if you go back and you do the history, look at the history of black cemeteries, not only in Iberville Parish but throughout this country. Currently, people are bulldozing black cemeteries to make way for industrial development, pipelines, highways, different kinds of roads. Whatever white people decide they want to do, they just bulldoze a black cemetery. They bulldoze them for parking lots and shopping centers. They bulldoze them for subdivisions and everything else. Uh, go back to the, I went back to the 1850s in Iperville Parish. They had about, I think, eight or ten lynchings in that parish. There's a history of stealing black folks' property in that parish. It had one of the worst battles in Iperville Parish during the 60s for equal equal rights and voting rights that has probably occurred anywhere else. If you hit uh, the Internet and just put the Plaquemine Civil Rights Movement, you will find it. There was a black church called Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock Baptist Church during the Civil Rights era where the sheriff, legislators, and white elected officials actually rode horses through the Plymouth Rock Baptist Church to bust up a civil rights meeting. They also hosed people down with fire hoses. It's a place where white folks reap benefits and black folks are given hell. This is reminiscent of living in the Jim Crow era, and actually what I call Iperville Parish and living there and having to go through there it's part of the second Jim Crow era, and it's not getting any better. This is a parish where you have a majority black population, but all of your elected officials are white. This is a parish where there's one judge in 18 judicial district. And in order to get that judge, they carved out a large portion of the black population and put in one district what we call back during the day gerrymandering, well, they gerrymandered that district. It's no reason in the world. The school board is controlled by white people. You have a majority black school district, black student population there. The large majority of the administrators in the school system are white. You have a slight majority black teacher ratio. The ratio of educators in that parish should represent the student population. We know people take off their robes at night and they come to the class and they attempt to teach your children. These people have never had the interests of these black children at heart. And thank God I graduated from a segregated school because I probably wouldn't have a high school diploma today. People were beaten there trying to, trying to register the vote. It's no different than anywhere else in the South. It may be a little bit worse. Uh, you look at employment in, in parish offices, majority of the people employed are white. Uh, majority of the people locked up in prison from there are black. Even when I was a detective in 74, white kids would shoplift during the summer 
they call their parents. Black kids shoplift, they would give them uh, a juvenile record. I told them back then, if you're going to call white people children, white parents to pick up their children, you're going to call black parents to pick up their children. Nothing has changed in that parish. It's still an outdated racist environment where you have to fight neck and tuck just for survival. The police now, they'll stop black people on the road and give them tickets. White people keep going. White people commit crimes, they don't go to jail. Black people commit crimes, whatever the maximum sentence is for whatever they did, that's what they're going to give them. It's one of the most racist environments I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a bit about the the chemical company, Axial Chemical, and and what do you think it wants to do with this land, why it's fighting so hard uh, for so many years for this land, and um, also about the chemical companies in the surrounding area, um, and what they've been doing to the predominantly black communities uh, all around Louisiana. Basically, what they want this with with Axial Westlake, this cemetery is sitting in the development in the middle of any growth they may possibly have. I know what they want to do with it. They want to bulldoze it and build their chemical plant over it. It's no doubt, just like I told you, this is what's happening all over the country. So this will be the expansion project. The plant has always been a bad actor. Back in 1987, they were gassing us like we were in concentration camps, you know, running from chlorine, explosions. PVC was polyvinyl chloride was dumped on us a, on a daily basis. We filed a suit against them for a long-term health study. The attorneys came back and we negotiated a buyout. That's how I ended up in Brule leaving Plaquemine uh, because of that buyout. So they've always been bad actors. Uh, Marsonville, which is located next to Dow Chemical, they bought out, Dow bought out the Marsonville community. A lot of the people settled up in the area where I'm in, Brule. There was another plant called SNF, Flopam. They bought out a small community called the Ella community. And this is what they do. They, get, they come in, they gas you to the point where you have no choice but to leave. The other choice, if you decide to stay there, had I stayed there, uh, I probably would be dead and would not be talking to you right now because they would have killed us from exposing us to their chemicals. We go to the graveyard now to put new flowers on the grave, pick up the old flowers. They're full of polyvinyl chloride, and polyvinyl chloride is easy, easy to see. It's like a little white powdery substance. When you pick up, uh, and I buy all silk flowers, I never buy live flowers. You pick up a silk flower and you leave out that grave, you're full of PVC. The flowers are full of it. So they're bad actors. You call the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality and report releases, they'll tell them, oh, that's on our property. We, We can release you. Try and tell them it's not on their property. I have a deed, another corrupt department in there. They just give them blanket permits. They're supposed to look at, and, and of course, there is no monitoring. If they were monitoring the air in that area, they would know what they're releasing. At one point, Georgia Gulf released phenol in the Mississippi River, and most parishes get their drinking water supply from the Mississippi River, and they contaminated it. They end up getting a fine. It's always been a bad actor on the scene. And, of course, black lives have never mattered from day one when they came there. 
federal regulations. As close as that chemical plant is to that cemetery, federal law actually prevent that. Nobody, and of course, we didn't know they couldn't do what they were doing at that point. We didn't know there were federal laws that protected cemeteries, burial sites, and everything else. So they built it. That plant should have never expanded that close to that cemetery. Prior to black folks being in that area, prior to white folks being in that area, Acadianas, Acadians, anybody else, Native Americans inhabited that area. When they first came, I'm sure, I'm sure because it was inhabited by Native Americans, I'm sure they destroyed many, many Native American burial sites. And, of course, nothing has happened. Today, uh, whatever they do, they have to do an archaeological study. And who knows, they may still be destroying them. They destroyed Native American burial grounds. What do you think they'll do to the Reveal Town Cemetery if they got their hands on it? Can you talk about the communities fighting back against the sorts of environmental racism that you described? You know, you described uh, one, one plant releasing PVC a number of years ago, but, but uh, this is an ongoing fight, right? Uh, it's an ongoing fight since the Reveal Town community is no longer there. After we sued them in 87, we settled the case in 88. Uh, we took a monetary settlement, the people who sued. The other people built a little, they, they bought property, just like on a plantation, they bought a little piece of property and gave them three or, little, three or four different little homes to select from. They could select that, so they built that. In my understanding, if the people had a mortgage on the property in Reveal Town, they made arrangements with the lending institution to have that mortgage pay, follow them to whatever little house they had built from. They've just always been a bad actor. Right. And, and can you talk about the relationship, the historic relationship between the local government and the chemical company, too? Uh, the, the chemical company, ever since they came, they always buy their politicians. Actually, the current sheriff and the current parish president I pulled their financial campaign disclosure statements. And, of course, the plant is, in fact, large contributors to their, their campaigns. So they're actually bought. They're already bought. And they've been buying them ever since they've been there. It's no laws to prevent them from buying the candidates. And as long as, I mean, the public officials, I guess as long as they give them contributions within the legal limits, they can continue to buy the sheriff, the parish president, the governor, and the attorney general, and whomever else is connected with that with that place. And, of course, um, with a, a majority of uh, white people on the council, planning and zoning regulations, they can actually put a chemical plant anywhere they want. They can dump it on top of you if they want, just like they did us. Laws haven't changed. Racism hadn't changed. Everything has remained the same. Chris, can you talk a bit about the, the legal history of the case, where it stands now, all the developments that have led up to uh, the current fight, and where you hope that it will go in the coming months? Sure. Um, the case has, has actually a very complicated legal history. Um, initially, you know, so as Janice mentioned, this the property was bought by freedmen back in the 1880s, and at the time, you know, coming out of slavery without any education or um, they really didn't know how to form, um, I guess, corporate entities. And so when they bought the property in the name of the church, or in the name of the Mount Zion Baptist Association, sorry, um, they they hadn't 
done what they I guess they hadn't done um, I guess what the formal legal requirements are to, to form an association they just called themselves an association because that's what they thought you had to do <clears throat> and so without having any formal legal entity formed um, what our opponents have done in many cases is challenged our ability to bring any kind of suit because there's they say that well no entity exists or if one did exist well then you, we aren't the correct people to bring the suit in the name of the entity because in Louisiana, the the members of the um, association would have to get together, vote on who has the legal right to, or who's going to act on behalf of the association and move forward. And so, and the courts have kind of bought into that. And so it's, it has been a problem. Um, but otherwise, if, if that's the case, and we have to get all the members of the original association to get together and vote on who can bring suit on behalf of the association, well, that's a huge problem because they're all dead. And so what do you do in that situation? Now, what we've discovered, I guess, following, um, you know, probably in the early 1900s, there, there were some laws that came about in Louisiana that allowed you to bring suit on behalf of a re- religious organization that had not been formally incorporated. And so we've, we've been trying to um, use that to our advantage, but um, the courts have kind of kicked it back at us. And so recently what we've done in Louisiana, there's, um, there's possession and there's ownership. And you initially start with a possessory action whenever you're, uh, whenever someone has, I guess, has challenged your right to use property or they've kind of evicted you from the use of the property. And so we've brought a possessory action in Janice and all of her relatives, they will all tell you that they've been burying individuals in that cemetery since it was initially purchased in 1881 by the association. And they've been using it at the association's permission because that was that was what it was bought for. That's what every member of the Revealtown community has used it for. And so what we've done is we've filed um, a possessory action, but as a precarious possessor. A precarious possessor is anyone, is let's say if I own a piece of property and I lease it to you, well, the person that leased it from you would be your precarious possessor. He's essentially using the property on your behalf. And so, and that's exactly what Janice and all of her relatives and, and the other individuals who have ancestors buried in that cemetery, um, they're all essentially precarious possessors. So we brought suit in that regard. And we've, the chemical company said, well, no, we interrupted your possession a long time ago. And so what you have to do is from the moment of, I guess, eviction or um, some kind of interruption in your possession, you have within one year to file suit. And what they've claimed is that they erected a fence around the property in early 2000s, right after, I think, 9-11. And since they, they did that so long ago, we had to bring suit a long time ago to prevent that. Well, it's not, you know, and the court actually bought into that. And the, the problem with that is they didn't actually interrupt any possession of the cemetery. They they just blocked, as Janice talked about, there used to be a road that led into the cemetery, and the chemical companies tore it up. And so for them to get into the cemetery, they had to go an alternate route and cross over the chemical company's property to get into the cemetery. And so what we said is, like, no, they never they never interrupted their possession of the cemetery. They All they interrupted was their ability to cross the property to get into the cemetery. There's what's called in Louisiana a perennial rite of passage, which means if you have a landlocked piece of property you and you can't, there's no, it doesn't border on essentially a highway. Well, then you have to give someone a right of passage to get to their own property. And so what what we've said is no, and what I think is right under the law is no, they they just interrupted their right to cross the property to get into the cemetery. Now, the reason possession is significant and why we're fighting that battle now instead of maybe over ownership 
is because if if they can establish that they've they've been possessing the property, well, then they can ultimately say, oh, we've possessed it long enough, so such that we own it. Because in Louisiana, what happened, you know, and as Janice said, you know, they don't have any title to the property, and so really their only route, or their I guess their most valid route to get to ownership is to say, no, we've been possessing it for more than a year, which means we have the right to possess, and and we've been having we've had possession of it either 10 years or 30 years. There are two two time periods in Louisiana. If you possessed it 10, uh, 10 years of just title, which is just any kind of document that says, oh, I'm transferring ownership to you, um, or 30 years, if you doesn't matter. You just evict whoever's on the property and you keep it and you use it for 30 years, well, then you get ownership. So that's why it's significant because if they can establish that they've been possessing it, well, then they're going to try and establish that they're the owners of it. And then if after the possession issues are um, litigated, of course, then you can fight you go fight over ownership. And the reason you kind of avoid an ownership battle initially and why we haven't got to ownership yet in this case is because um, whoever's deemed in – the person who is not in possession of it will then has to go show that they have title going back all the way to the sovereign, meaning the first Louisiana land grants in Louisiana back when the United States first acquired it in 1812, I believe. Um, and so that's, that's difficult to do. However, we can do that. And so if we have to fight the ownership battle, we will. We're just trying to avoid that. And you know you never you never want to have to give yourself a higher burden than you than um, is necessary of proof. So that's that's where we are right now. Currently, um, the, the, we had a trial on our you know as I said before, the chemical company said no, we've been possessing it for more than a year, and you know we interrupted your possession a long time ago. So we had a small trial on that, and the judge the judge um, agreed with them, and so now we're we're our, we have an appeal before the Louisiana First Circuit Court of Appeal, and that's what's pending right now. And what was that trial like? What was your experience with their lawyers? I mean, how did they try to prove that uh, that they've been in possession of the land for over a year? It was a very tough trial, you know, and because there are so, there are very difficult procedural issues involved and very difficult um, legal aspects. Property law is very complicated in Louisiana, and so it was difficult. You know, part of it was educating the court on here's what the law is, here's the complicated history of this. But then all you know, the other hard part is look, it's you know, it, we, it's kind of like a David and Goliath battle here. You know, it's it's us, and you've got five lawyers sitting on the other side of you, and you know, me and Janice sitting at a table doing our best and fighting as hard as we can. You know, because the cemetery means a lot, and there's a lot at stake here. So it, it was very difficult. Um, and I guess what they've they tried to say, as I said before, is that you know they built the fence a long time ago, and they've been forcing Janice and all of her relatives to ask for permission to go into the cemetery, which is an indication that they that they might possess it. But like I said, you know, having to explain to the judge, no, it's it, they just interrupt their right of passage. Let, let me add one thing, Chris. Um, that's why McNeil Street is so important, because until they closed off that infrastructure, we didn't have to cross that property. Had they not illegally closed off a public road, we would never, ever have had to cross their property. That road has never been abandoned in accordance with Louisiana law. And that's why it's important that we sue the parish to make them open that road back up. Um, one other thing in searching the clerk of court's office, the first documented case uh, title uh, organization unincorporated used was 1874, and that was the Mount Zion First Baptist Association of Louisiana. Even though it's unincorporated, they still have that document in the clerk's office. And the other thing that we hadn't touched on 
because our ancestors bought it. I don't know if we need to take out a succession on the property, but in Louisiana, you have a right to inherit property. There are two constitutional issues I looked at. One is a Civil Rights Act of 1866 that gave ex-slaves the right to buy property, own property, have contracts, and their heirs to inherit the property. So we have, in addition to dealing with these folks, there are a couple of constitutional issues that we hadn't even gotten gotten yet. And, and so far as the fence is concerned, prior to their pulling up our fence, which was a barbed wire fence long before the plant came there, we had a barbed wire fence around the property. They pulled up that fence and put another fence around it on their property. So if once they tore up the road, the parish didn't intervene, they tore it up illegally, we didn't have no other way to get to the cemetery but to cross their property. And just another difficult um, challenge, and I don't want to go too far into this, but, you know, a lot, we have, of course, elected officials, but our, our judges are also elected. So that's another um, political aspect that we have to deal with and consider. And so that's another challenge, I guess, that we're facing. I don't want to get too much into that or suggest suggest anything, but that's just another aspect of it that we have to deal with. And, you know, and, and there are a lot of, I guess, inherent biases in the courts uh, here in Louisiana. And, you know, we do have a long stretch of um, racism and, you know, that kind of thing to, to contend with. Janice, you've talked a bit about um, how your particular struggle and, and your community's struggle for access um, to the cemetery where your family is buried and how it fits into the greater struggle for black land and, and particular black cemeteries. I'm hoping you can talk some more about that, uh, that ongoing struggle, and also this sort of national conversation that we're having now about um, reparations for um, the theft of black land and black wealth that I think a lot of folks assumed, you know, ended when slavery ended. But I think that your, your struggle in your case is, is an example of how that theft is ongoing. And I'm, I'm wondering how you see um, your case fit into the conversation around reparations and whether we should be understanding the theft of black land as an ongoing occurrence rather than something that ended, you know, 150 years ago. America, as racist as it is, even though following slavery, they promised 40 acres and a mule. If they gave it, they took it back. And, and in many instances, if white people wanted land that black folks, not, not through um, giving away property, if white folks decided they wanted a piece of land that black folks owned, they just lynched the people, who black folks who owned it. They'll kill them, shoot them or chase them out of town, next thing they'll go file a quick claim deed in the court. This has been going on. They don't do the physical lynching as much now as they did following slavery, but that was the way white people acquired black people's property. And like I say, there's a guy named uh, Michael Trinkley, and, and he's an expert, one of the few in the country, who can actually track black cemeteries the loss of black cemeteries and how people have stolen black cemeteries for their personal land use, uh, government land use, ever since the end of slavery. Reparations, like I said, we'll never get in this country. Given the racist history in this country, nobody's going to give black folks anything. As a matter of fact, they owe us. If there's anything, we all should be taking, uh, be given money 
by this country for the free labor our ancestors provided, particularly to build the South. It's not going to happen. You know, they gave the Japanese some reparations for placing them in internment camps. And I go back to the Native Americans. Look how they took this whole, white people took this whole country from Native Americans, placed them on reservations. And my daughter was telling me the other day that Native Americans could go to any state-supported college in America. That's not reparations. Native Americans have never received anything, and if they originally took everything from Native Americans, what do we think we're going to get from them? All they've given Native Americans is a hard time to go. The only thing, like I said, we've, we've got the one hope, I don't know in the, with Trump if it would work, and, of course, this is up to the lawyers. Well, of course, we have these civil rights uh, acts that's supposed to be enforced, and, of course, we have something in the Constitution, 14th Amendment, called due process. And we know those documents are as flawed as they could be, too, and they enforce them and interpret them like they want, like Chris say, they enforce and interpret the law like they want to enforce it and interpret. And my whole thing with the possession thing is, if we've continuously buried people in that cemetery, how can they possess it? If we've continued to cut the grass, how can they possess it? They're operating on an affidavit from one white man that say they cut the grass. When we've got tons of people in that community or from that community who's given affidavit saying we've always cleaned that cemetery, uh, they even lie and say they bought the flowers. I know they've never bought a flower for any of my relatives, and they, I'd, I'd like to know who they put them on. And the other part is they claim they love the veterans. How in the world are you going to bulldoze American veterans who fought back as far as World War One that we can document in, in that cemetery up to the uh, Vietnam War. It's just, it's part of the racist history in here, and we're going to continue to fight out. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, we've got to lay down in that cemetery. I'm going to lay down. They're going to have to kill me. Uh, one of the other things, you're always fearful for your life when you go out there because you never never know if you're going to get shot. Like my granddaughter told me one time, she wasn't going to leave me back there with those deputies because I might disappear because it's in a wooded area, and I wouldn't put that past them. All right. Thanks for sharing that. And and thank you both so much for uh, for talking with me and, and joining us on the Activist Files. I think it's such an important example of the intersections of so many issues with racial justice and the racist history of this country with Native Americans, the treatment of Native Americans and environmental racism and the ongoing theft of black land and the possibility or or lack of reparations in this country. So thank you both so much for joining us, and we'll stay tuned with your struggle for sure. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Take care. And now the Center for Constitutional Rights News. Last week, we won a huge victory in our case of Palestine Legal and Alan Levine on behalf of Fordham University students. Fordham banned them from forming a Students for Justice in Palestine Club, or SJP, because the dean thought an SJP would create polarization on campus and run contrary to Fordham's mission and values. This is ironic, given that Fordham prides itself on promoting justice and protecting human rights. In the two years it took the court to reach a decision, four of the students graduated. But last week, a judge ruled in their favor, ordering Fordham to recognize the club. Thanks to the victory in this first-of-its-kind case, Fordham will finally have an SJP on campus. That's just great news and a great victory, Leah. 
In addition to this case, the Center for Constitutional Rights won two major legal victories that will throw a wrench in the administration's racist agenda to end the asylum system. First, on July 16th, the Trump administration issued a new regulation. It said that any person who passed through a third country to get to the U.S.-Mexico border would be denied asylum unless they had already applied and been denied in that third country. Transit countries like Mexico and Guatemala have weak or non-functioning asylum systems. So this rule would effectively end asylum for anyone fleeing horrific conditions in the Northern Triangle countries of Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. In practice, it would virtually end asylum on the southern border. The next day, the Center for Constitutional Rights, the ACLU, and the Southern Poverty Law Center sued to block the rule. We argue that the rule is inconsistent with the asylum law that Congress has enacted over decades and with international law. The judge issued a preliminary ruling blocking the rule from taking effect. This was just the latest action by this administration to deter asylum seekers and vilify immigrants of color. And that ruling came just days before another major victory in our asylum work. Back in November 2017, we filed a class action lawsuit challenging customs and border protections practice of denying people access to the asylum process. This suit was filed on behalf of community organization Al Otro Lado, which provides services to immigrants and refugees on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border and vulnerable asylum seekers. We allege that CBP was systematically turning away asylum seekers at ports of entry, both by deception or threats, and by forcing individuals to wait on endless wait lists. These long wait lists force people to wait for weeks, even months, in very dangerous conditions on the Mexican side of the border. It is also designed to punish and deter asylum seekers. In November, the government asked a court for the second time to dismiss the lawsuit, and again the court refused. It issued an important decision regarding the scope and importance of our asylum laws. Now the case will continue into discovery. And it's important to remember that this fight didn't start and definitely won't end with the Trump administration. We're all in it for the long haul. And in bittersweet news, we're sad to say goodbye to our 16 incredible summer interns who helped make possible all the work that we'll carry forward. We know that as future movement lawyers and activists, they will continue to bring to communities the same dedication to justice that they brought to us here at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Welcome to The Real AF. Um, we're really excited to have Charles Green, our web communications manager, and also uh, the person who is responsible for recording the podcast, finally, on the microphone. Welcome, Charles. Greetings. Glad to be here. Yeah, and for Ian and my last episode, we're really excited to have this intimate conversation with you. Um, and Leah and Rob, please feel free to chime in um, with some Charles-specific would you rather questions? Well, I have to say it was a joy <laughs> recording and being at every, almost every podcast. And it was a lot of fun. This is, I learned a lot. Well, same to you. And we hope you don't steal other people's would you rather questions because you've heard I'll, a lot. I'll try not. <laughs> so I think a question we're all at the table wondering, would you rather watch Star Trek Deep Space Nine or Star Trek Next Generation? <sighs> Okay. Size. <laughs> serious side. Both of those were extraordinary, but I must say that I like Star Trek Next Generation. 
I grew up on the original series, which now I date myself, and did not think that any other Star Trek would be as compelling as that. And the next generation blew me away. Now that we have Jean-Luc Picard coming back in the new series, bringing back some old favorites, I'm giddy. But I have to say, I mean, I, all credit going towards Deep Space Nine, but Next Generation caught me at a pivotal time in my life. So, yeah. I didn't know about this new series. Oh, yeah. Um, Jean-Luc Picard is coming back. It should start um, early 2020. And it's 30 years after the Enterprise, something really big happened. And now he's dealing with the aftermath. And they're bringing back some old favorite characters, too. So, yeah. I'm having a geek squeal right now. All right. All right. I'm going to check that out, too, then. (laughs) Would you rather be able to control fire or water? Okay. Um, You may not know this, but I am a... My closet pyromaniac. We did not know that. (laughs) I was a really geeky kid. And in my bedroom, I did all of these really weird experiments and always had strange smells coming out of my room. Smoke, power would flicker in the house all the time because I was doing these things that I read in books that other scientists did. And one of them involved a lot of electricity and a lot of fire. Do you still have a laboratory in your house? At some point, my parents got tired of having television go off in the middle of the show. And back then, you did not have DVR. You did not have streaming where you can rewind. So when the power went off, you lost the show, and they would scream and yell. So uh, they gave me my own little special lab. My mother had a hothouse of fiberglass and concrete and she said um son (laughs) this is yours now it doesn't burn (laughs) and you have your own little power line and your own circuit breaker so you can flicker and turn power off as much as you want the rest of us want to see tv so that was my (laughs) that was my lab then and then at some point my father discovered that i was reading about pcs and this one pcs first came out and he's like you know what they don't burn (laughs) <laughs> and it, it, it doesn't put in acid does either his clothes and it you know it so he put me on the path of PCs and that ended up being my career so so here I am awesome would you rather have Spock ears or wear that um eye thing that that guy wore you mean data with his visor yeah not data but Jordan Jordan with his visor okay when I was young I used to massage my ears, keep pushing them up so I can have Spock ears. <laughs> that didn't just work. One, just one of his ears. <laughs> that did not work. So I would say the visor. He could see things. Yeah. Yeah. He could see things. I'm just going to leave it right there. Yeah. That's a yeah. key. Good place. <laughs> Thanks so much, Charlie. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. <laughs>